previously on Storylogical. <laughs> this is Storylogical, a podcast about. Hi, I am trying to reach Emma Kosh at Storylogical. No, I'm sorry, she is absent Hello? today. Hello? Hello? Hello, is no, anyone there? No, she didn't come in. She called in sick. Hello, hello, life. is there a man? Hello, is there a man there? <laughs> is, is there someone in charge I can speak to? Is there a responsible man? <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> this is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for this week is The Undignified Melodrama of the Bone Contention by Dorothy L. Sayers, published in... 1928. Oldest story alert, y'all. Oh, yeah. I take the crown. Basically, we have a Snapchat sort of system of trophies. It's a a secret award case that you don't get to see what the awards are until you win them. And right now, you have the award for oldest story. And let me tell you, I feel good. Right. So this is a 60-page ghost story mystery, um, which I found in the complete Lord Peter Whimsy stories, but was actually part, uh, published in 1928 as part of a, a different collection by Dorothy L. Sayers. The story goes like this. A rich old man dies. A ghostly coach pulled by headless horses is seen in the dead of night in the village. The church is ransacked. Seemingly, all of these disparate occurrences are not connected, but Lord Peter Whimsy swoops in, happens to be visiting his ridiculously snobby friends the Frobisher Pims uh, and solves it all puts it all together links it up so that people understand that what has in fact happened I mean should I give away the ending or should we just like sidle up to it I don't know I don't know if you've watched enough Scooby-Doo you might have a handle on the ending (laughs) if it wasn't for these dastardly kids it's true so what in fact has happened is uh, the nasty old man has left an awkward will which says that One of his sons takes all of the inheritance while he is above ground and the other son takes the rest of it as soon as his bones are put below ground. Did you say an awkward will? I don't know. Maybe I did. Presuming you did, I was enjoying the euphemism. Left there, the nasty old man left this horrible. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's true. This this story does bring out the worst kind of Britishness in me. The worst kind of like euphemistic, classist, awfulness and and i and i read it and it makes me i have two reactions okay all right that go in parallel one is i love the mystery i really love her writing i find it energetic and exciting and i love how she kind of like pokes at her characters and and undercuts their their pomposity um but on the other hand i also cringe so badly that this is a society that really existed not just in 1928, but oftentimes now in England. And the kind of paternalistic yeah. Yeah. Uh, attitude of it makes me terrified. I believe it is the first culture in which I've heard the phrase little people without irony. Yeah. One of the things I adored about this story was the kind of logic puzzle nature with which it's put together, which I guess is very common in mystery stories and and something that... Dorothy, I mean, we could just call her Dottie, right? That's the... Really? Dottie Sayers is the... uh, Well, I don't know that anybody ever called her Dottie Sayers, but that is the common uh, diminutive of Dorothy of the time. Yeah, so the the kind of beautiful logic with which she puts the story together. So this horrible old git has left this awful will, which is designed to pit his sons against each other. And then people from the from the village who are friendly with one of the sons have kind of intervened to try and 
uh, make sure that the body isn't buried, that it's kept above ground and therefore the suns can kind of hash it out between themselves. And I very much enjoyed the fact that the ghostly coach, the the strange goings on are in are not in order to try and grab the money for themselves. That's not what's being done to feed the greed. That's being done to try and stop the other son and his wife being greedy. And I kind of really enjoyed that. Just it's just a tiny little twitch. Let's talk about this idea of the cozy mystery. Because when I read this story, that's what was in my head. And I couldn't remember where that phrase came from. I mostly associated it with Agatha Christie. But then when I googled it, it turned out to be a late 20th century term coined to describe modern attempts to harken back to the golden age of British detective fiction of the 20s and 30s, which were apparently... Amateur detective style... Exactly, marked by amateur detectives who tended to be, on the whole, honorable sorts of fellows or, or what's the not male word? Folks? No, I mean the, the opposite of fellow. Isn't fellow a man? Is it, isn't there yeah. an equal term for a woman? Maybe, but I don't know what it is. Felady? Fly? Fellow and fly? Um, anyway, honorable sorts of people who would go into communities. There would be some mystery, some, some sense of disorder would happen the the detective would figure out what it was usually some reasonable explanation put things back to right community is okay everyone's fine and they were seen often as a way of of upholding the idea of as as one one article put it english life the best on offer that that you that the the coziness of the mystery was a kind of as a a reassertion of order in the yeah, face of yeah. something There's that interrupted. There's so much about, about maintaining the status quo. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Other things were a particular dialing down of any violence or sex that might have been in the narrative, but always pushed Off back. Off stage. Yeah, yeah. Any murders, any sex. And what was cool is there was this detection club of which G.K. Chesterton was the first president that mm-hmm. included Dorothy Sayers and Agatha Christie, among others. And they were the ones that came up with these rules, including... The one about always playing fair with the reader and making sure that it was a mm. it was a solid logic puzzle where the clues they were all there. When I thought about the story in that way, I thought I think like you were saying, the way it pokes at the characters, it has a sly social commentary that's happening. It ha- it is poking at the idea of English life as being somehow right. There's that conversation where the the, the prattling Mister Frobisher Pym discusses how the nonconformists are always trying to get a handle, you know, to pull themselves up. And Lord Whimsy thought to himself, nonconformists, it seemed, were always searching for handles, though what kind, whether door handles, teapot handles, pump handles, or starting handles, was never explained, nor what the handles were to be used for when found. However, having been brought up in the odor of the establishment, he was familiar with this odd dissenting peculiarity, and merely said, Pity to be extreme in a small parish like this. Yeah, the establishment. It's what it's about. It was beautifully condescending. And I loved that. I loved and sometimes was frustrated by Whimsy's aloofness, that he Mm -hmm. was above it all. He could cast aspersions on the small countries, towns, hierarchy and ways of being. Because one, it meant that I kind of felt sometimes like I was reading a pretty good episode of a long-running series of whose best episodes would be the ones where Lord Peter Whimsey had some personal stake involved in what was happening. You know, there was something that pulled, you know, really stuck him with the mystery. Mm. And the other thing it made me think of, for me, this was a story in which I was well aware there were going to be no ghosts and that ultimately what seemed ineffable would just become 
ineffable. Yeah, that's the whole point, is to explain the peculiarities in, in a, uh, you know, realistic sense. For, for Peter to uncover the, the charlatans and the um, suspicion. No, not suspicion. What do you call it um, when people believe in... Superstition. Yes. To, yeah. For Peter to uncover the charlatans and the superstition and to, to demonstrate how it's all complete piffle. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I love the idea that, that the way this story is, is poked and, and sewn together, it feels like you can read Mr. Frobisher Pym's inability to believe the peasantry about what they see. The, the guy that saw the ghost carriage. Uh, Frobisher Pym is like, ah, you were drunk. Maybe your liver was acting up. I don't know. You got something. That, that in itself is a kind of superstition. He can't get past his own right, inane you, beliefs. Yeah, you can't expect any kind of sensible... Uh, what is the phrase he uses? Like a, a nuance of emotional reaction from someone of that class. And then again, in another moment, he says that um, Martin's wife, one of the sons, his wife, you know, isn't of the same class as Martin. And that's obviously a serious issue. And oh, he's just the worst. But I, so the first time I read it, I was frustrated with him and I was frustrated with the story because I didn't necess- I didn't spot immediately how she was undercutting him and pointing out that he was an idiot. Uh, the second time through when I read it, I was like, oh yeah, he is really there as kind of like the foil to Peter Whimsy. So, so that we can love Peter more for being um, generous and seeing everybody in their best light and, you know, observing everything accurately. Like Frobisher Pym is somebody who is as, um, as privileged as Peter pretty much, but that doesn't, that, that doesn't, uh, turn out to be such a good egg as the phrase might come from the, of the time. That was one of the things that on my second reading that stood out to me a bit more because while, you know, I was saying that I loved, as I was reading it the first time, understanding the, the poking and the, the slyness, the feeling on my second reading of, gosh, she's probably writing this from London about this small rural hamlet and about how Lord Peter Whimsey, the fashionable, cool, aloof doctor, not doctor, <laughs> uh, cool detective. <laughs> yeah, he is the doctor character, though, uh, right? Yeah, he is kind of like the doctor, it's true. Um you know, he can see through these country bumpkins and their inherent class privilege. And it it tweaked me a little bit because it felt like the a kind of easy, you might say now, like a kind of easy liberalism of let's mm-hmm. show the prejudice and the inanity of the country folk. Uh, you know, Lord Peter's privilege, I would assume, is much higher than sure. some magistrate out in the county. Mm-hmm. And yet it also made me think, Are the is the subtlety of satire in this kind of story because of class and privilege, that that in the way that Lord Peter Whimsey was born into privilege and so he can smell it, mm. that if you're writing in that time, then the way that Oscar Wilde wrote, that you tend to go for sly satire and humor because mm-hmm. you want to be able to critique without upending everything since you yourself are part of the establishment. Right, and you want to do it in a sly way because you want to kind of, well, slide it in under the door. Right. If you do it in too much of a smash down the door kind of a way, you're never going to get up people's noses in the way that you want to. You want people to kind of like open the book and think it's written for them and about them and and to them. Uh, and then suddenly they kind of realize like, oh shit, this is about us, but not in a way that we love. 
I think the catch-22 is that you might read this book in London and not really think that Peter is condescending or poking at you so much as poking at, at the country. So I read this whole collection by Dorothy L. Sayers and I pulled this one out uh, partly because I really enjoyed the sense of dread I felt at one of the scenes about a third of the way through. So Peter Whimsey goes out to this village in the countryside and he's staying with his friends, the Frobisher Pims, but he also has an old war buddy who lives on the other side of the village and he takes a horse and rides out to see the friend oh, yeah. and he's been hearing these stories not only the ghost carriage stories but also the stories about how the common is a great place for highwaymen and it has this place the dead man's post where horses always shy away from and other animals won't go near and he goes to see his war, old war buddy they get completely sloshed and he refuses the offer to stay overnight as soon as he makes that decision, you can already, or I already felt the kind of slight anxiety rising in my chest. And I really loved the way she built that suspense and dread. So Peter has these different ways to getting out of crossing the common late at night while he's drunk on a horse. He refuses to stay overnight with his friends. He refuses to go the marginally longer way round. He, he decides to cross the common. And I really got this kind of hairs on the back of my neck standing up kind of situation and when she finally delivers the gut punch of what happens right this is the moment when he gets to experience the ghost carriage that he finds out that this guy they've been talking to before Plunkett was telling the truth because he sees it for himself that's the moment where I really felt this huge sense of satisfaction at her writing and the way she structured and delivered the story. And, and that's what made me pick it over any of the other stories in the book. My absolute favorite line in the story, I think, kind of in a way that, that it echoes with what you're talking about, that, that dread moment is when early on, when Mr. Frobisher Pym, in discussing this with the, the, the guy who it turns out was telling the truth, he says, there are no ghosts in the 20th century. <laughs> uh, which I, which I just I just adore that line. One, because I don't I don't have any idea if Joe Hill, when he called his book Twentieth Century Ghost, was aware oh that Oh my god, you know, maybe that a, is a reference. Yeah, that's what I thought. Maybe, because maybe he was a big fan of these kind of, of mysteries and Dorothy Sayers. And that line feels so profound in a way, considering that you know, what was the date of the story? Nineteen twenty eight. Yeah. So in between the wars, before the depression happened in the US and I assume it happened in other countries. Yeah, yeah, we, we totally fell over when you guys called in your, your war loans. <laughs> we, we were like, we oh, called shit. In, it was like, um, yeah. A very wise person once told me that, that there are really no distinction between genres. Stories mm. are stories. The only thing is, as a reader, are you interested in being comforted or surprised? And for me, oh. the ultimate dissatisfaction of stories like this, even as I love them, there's a little bit of the sense that they have comforted me. Right, they have taught no me that the monster under the bed doesn't exist and that bad people will be found out. It's literally implicit in the, co in the name Cozy Mystery, which is obviously retroactively applied, but, but that fits this kind of story. It's almost like it's not an unpleasant dissatisfaction that I have because it, it, it does make me smile. But in the way, like you said, that he is like the doctor, mm -hmm. 
what makes me enjoy Doctor Who more is that the Doctor is unhinged in a way. The the wonder, the the mystery of those stories uh, often seem to be threatening to devour. Right. If Peter Whimsey was, I don't know, an alcoholic or a megalomaniac <laughs> or bipolar or something. Right. You know, You'd that... be sure that home. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I love how he's described in this story as a regular Sherlock. Yeah, there is something cozy and comforting in the idea that a legend of our time was seen as a legend, you know, before Already. our time. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like we, I mean, you know, they thought he was cool. I mean, so. So good. It's like when you look up to your older brother and you're like, well, they think it's cool. Yeah, you grow out of that. My pick for this week is Franny by J.D. Salinger, published in The New Yorker in 1955. Before I even tell you what it's about, I'm going to let you know, Emma, also readers slash listeners, humans, um, I picked the story for a couple of reasons. One, I just happened to read it on the way to, to the Laura Marling show last week. And I was like, oh, this is cool. I like it. I forgot how much I love J.D. Salinger, the, the Mr. YA before there was YA, the kind of cynical, detached, yet passionate tone of his writing that feels like it has infused John Green and Joss Whedon and even Kelly Link, this kind of naturalistic dialogue that feels heightened to the point that it's that is kind of like a naturalistic caricatureness. Yeah. Two, because I was like, oh my god, this is like this is exactly a kind of mirror to the Peter Whimsey story to me. Yeah. Because they're both stories about overeducated, somewhat disaffected people that have established different poses around their emotional vulnerabilities. Um, I mean, I was just going to say privilege, but right, yes. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing, is the Lord Peter Whimsey story, the emotional architecture of those people is is left a bit to the imagination. Right, yeah, she Uh, does not get into it, whereas these these guys... Yeah, they get into it. He's all about that emotional architecture. This is like the definition of the the self-conscious and over-educated kind of... I don't know, genre, the, the beginning of like teenagers that are too smart for their own good. Though, the story, not about teenagers, they're actually in college. Mm-hmm. And the story is about Franny, who is a girl who's coming in on the train to meet her beau, who takes her to a cafe, and much like Mr. Frobisher Pym, is one of these men taken to incessant prattle in which they demonstrate their mastery of whatever situation they happen to be in. Or, as I like to put it, the worst. Yeah. And the story basically evolves along the line of their conversation and and Franny's ratcheting of discomfort with his inability to discuss anything that seems real to her. And, and one of the things I love about the story is, is at the beginning, you're at the train station with the boy and where he's standing. And right after Franny arrives on the train... Salinger just tilts over into her point of view in one paragraph. Right, it's an amazing demonstration of how omniscient can be smoothly transitioned back and forth between two characters, right? Because you do jump back and forth and it it doesn't feel at any point like, oh, I'm confused about what I'm seeing here or why I'm seeing it. It's just, it's just okay, now I'm going to delve into his perspective, now I'm going to delve into her perspective. And the thing that made the story special for me, so you have this conversation where, where Franny is getting more and more upset that this boy is prattling on about his life and not seeming to see her or connect with anything real. Franny has a book with her, this pea-green cloth-bound book 
that pops up in the first scene and he asks her about it and she says, oh, it's just something and puts it back in her bag. And, and that book grows and grows in importance. And it turns out to be a book like out of, to me, like, like a Gothic tradition, like this found manuscript of incessant prayer and how, how to touch the, the face of God. And, mm. and that, that is what moved me so much in the story. Whereas like the Lord Peter Whimsey story was a, this cozy story of, of privilege and, and ineffable right, becoming never effable. Right, reached beyond that structure. Yeah, yeah. And, and this story, which is set entirely in a kind of over-educated cafe, let's talk setting, ultimately reaches out towards something ineffable and ends with her muttering the name of God, muttering this incessant prayer. And the story mm. just stops right there. And I think in that reaching he does something magical that made anger and rage boil up inside of me like lava. The entitlement and privilege and fucking mediocrity of Lane and his ridiculous term paper that he thinks he should be able to talk to her about in this ongoing rant of... of ineptitude while she's like oh hey by the way i've got this incredible book that i think might change your life but no 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 she's not allowed to fucking say shit until he has stopped giving his uh just mediocrity this airtime and i got so angry because at first when i read it i was like oh, this is just a representation. This is just literally just reflects what is happening between the genders at the time in 1955. And it was only as I got further and further through it that I saw how clever and how smart it was. You know, it gets beyond that kind of goodwill hunting takedown of intellectualism. It, it really digs into the way in which, as a woman, Franny has clearly been told that what she says and what she does does not matter to the world at large, that she exists only to react to a male perspective, to a male viewpoint. And, you know, every time she opens her mouth, pretty much, she she apologizes, she shuts herself down, she says, oh, I'm so dim-witted. In fact, it's there in the first, in the, in the PS of the letter that pretty oh, much the opens PS. the... Yeah, yeah. That opens the thing. What does she say? Uh, let yeah, me just and, and just sign. I love that her character is introduced through a letter. There's just yeah. something beautiful about reading somebody's whole letter, reading their words before they show up. It's nicely done. So what she says, so she writes this letter to Lane and we, we see Lane thinking about this letter that she sent him. P.P.S. I sound so unintelligent and dim-witted when I write to you. Why? I give you permission to analyze it. And my, my PPPS, my additional postscript on that is because Lord knows I know my place and it is not to analyze it for myself. No, sorry. I've been told often enough that women are less than men. And so let me just reinforce that in all my actions because I want to be loved. I want to be acceptable. I want to fulfill this definition of women that I have been told is the right one. And therefore, you must... I, this is my PPS. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I told you. okay. And therefore, I must... Uh, you know, just enact that absorption of of prejudice that that exists in my life. Part of what to me is so wonderful about Franny and Salinger's, you know, the way that she comes to life and uh, in this story, 
is it is it to me in that in that ps you can also already see the beginning of her rebellion and her mm. anger because she said she wants to have a marvelous time this weekend i mean not try to analyze everything to death for once if possible especially me period i love you that letter captures some of what continues throughout the story which is to me um I guess it would be Salinger-esque is what you would call it. The, the, <laughs> this, this tone of writing that feels both breezy and desperate. It, it's relaxed and yet somehow also apocalyptical. Like, And in that letter, it's, it's captured in the fact that Franny's trying always to be like, it's okay, everything's okay, I love you, everything's fine. And of course, sometimes she'll write, I love you six times in a row. And you're like, I don't know, I'm starting to think you're compensating for something. Yeah, and I loved how assured the construction of the kind of, of binary that mm-hmm. he was picking apart at this. Because on the one hand, it is it is male and female. Like, he is unpicking that relationship. And at the same time, he's centrating it, as you say, on a kind of intellectual rationalism. Because at the beginning of the story, when the boys are waiting for the train, he has this amazing description of what they're talking about, which is... The rest were standing around in hatless, smoky little groups of twos and threes and fours inside the heated waiting room, talking in voices that, almost without exception, sounded collegiately dogmatic, as though each young man in his strident conversational turn was clearing up, once and for all, some highly controversial issue, one that the outside, non-matriculating world had been bungling, provocatively or not, for centuries. <laughs> I know, right? and the, and That was we... the phrase that made me think of goodwill hunting. One of the reasons I realize I like going back to to Salinger is he seems to have invented and deconstructed countless tropes that we have seen in our lives of this kind of overeducated, super self-conscious person, Mm. like in Goodwill Hunting. But in this case, he's presenting them and then dismantling them at the same time. Yeah, all at once. Because there's a moment in the cafe where Lane, he had this this air of self-possession as though all was right in the world and right with him. And one of the things that was right was he was with the right sort of girl who mm-hmm. looked the right way. Right, yes. And that's, oh, so many things. Okay. Franny is a woman who lives in this kind of uh, privileged level of white society in America in the 50s and who has presumably faced some challenges in order to, to go to college at all. But she is somebody who has been told that her value comes from the way she looks. Not necessarily the things she does, but the clothes she wears. Like this raccoon coat that Lane can't stop fixating on. And that that kissing that coat was like kissing her because it was an extension of her. I was like, oh. And I thought a lot about two things. One, I thought about young women with eating disorders. And how when you're consistently told that your value comes from the way you look your hair the way you dress um in combination with you're not allowed to make decisions on your own behalf your opinion doesn't matter you're not allowed to have any kind of level of self-determination you know what you get when those two things smash together is a kind of a, a horrible situation where a young woman the only decision she can make the only power she has in her own life is what she puts in her mouth or what she chooses not to put in her mouth and that is you know food that's what leads i mean it's not the only thing but it's often part of the sort of psychological pain that makes up an eating disorder and i thought that it was fascinating that we start to see franny 
split from Lane's expectations by not eating. And that he is clearly freaked out by this. Like, wait, you are not adhering to my rules. We've come for food. You should eat food. You should listen to me. I can talk for, hey, pretty much 15, 20 minutes solid about my mediocre term paper. And then you ask me one question and I am pissed off. Ultimately, she she does insert herself in the conversation and she does tell about this book because, you know, you know, you were saying that one of the mechanics of way certain kind of eating disorders can develop is that is what you control is what you eat. And what has been in her control throughout the story is the book. She's decided to, to have this book in her life and to carry mm-hmm. it. And she's decided not to share it with him, which has been just under the surface, something that's been bugging him throughout because he keeps yeah, asking right? her, he what's won't that tell, thing she won't tell keeping him. it from me? Mm-hmm. Because, right, he, to get all symbolical for a second, you know, he is the representation of that kind of intellectual, self-assured, all-knowing, I can just reason my way through everything. And problematic or not, the the woman in the story is a symbol of, of a kind of glorious ineffableness, of, mm-hmm. of a sense of unknown. What makes it less problematic here is she's just a person. Um, Salinger does a good enough job to me of making these people real. Yeah. That, that yeah. No matter and I what, feel like he's doing it with purpose as yeah. well. Yeah. And she reads to him from the book. She talks to him about the book. She tells him that it's about this pilgrim that is trying to learn how to pray incessantly because that apparently is something that you're told to do in the Bible. And, and, the, and the pilgrim's been taught to, to, to say the words, just pray, just pray. And, it, and what Franny says is so marvelous. She says, the thing is, the marvelous thing is, when you first start doing it, you don't even have to have faith in what you're doing. I mean, even if you're terribly embarrassed about the whole thing, it's perfectly all right. I mean, you're not insulting anybody or anything. In other words, nobody asks you to believe a single thing when you first start out. You don't even have to think about what you're saying. God, I hope she can apply that to her own emancipation and rebuilding of her right? well, like, that's personal the, strength. That's what makes it so amazing, right? Her evocation of the book lets us know of her struggles, all the mm. things that she can't say, all the things she's saying there about how you don't There's have to believe so much it. You don't even have to her, think right? about what you're saying also reflects on the way Lane has been, you know, he's always thinking. He's always thinking out loud. He's... Mm. There's no beginning without already knowing what you're doing is the right thing. Whereas for her, there is only beginning when it's okay that you don't know it's the right thing. Right. I I certainly felt that there was a moment in my 20s where I had to decide to find out what it was like to talk with people and to take up space off in meetings right in in a corporate environment and that it I wanted more than just to respond to other people's points I wanted to bring up what I thought and learn how to structure it in an argument and learn how to make my point in a way that would make other people nod at the table as opposed to what was happening to me at the time which was either being interrupted shouted down or ignored and that was what I saw happening to a lot of people mainly women, but but some men, often younger, who weren't making their presence felt. And I was like, no, I don't want this. And so like, I think part of the reason I felt so viscerally upset by this story is that Franny is at that tipping point that I felt myself and was terrified to say, okay, now is the time. This space is not empty. This is full of a person and this is who I am. What I adore about the way that that cusp that you described is rendered in the story 
is that, you know, when I was saying that she kind of gains agency and then loses it, just this, this story is essentially gothic. And, and what I was saying about how there's this found manuscript with this ancient wisdom, there's lots of Borges in it. And, and the way it ends, she's, you know, been flighty this whole time. And in, in, in a way, you know, she describes herself as crazy in a way that, again, calls to mind tropes that we think of now as super sensitive, smart, self-conscious man creates story in which there's a crazy woman who brings the boy to life. Hysterical. Um, but, but, you know, this story unpicks it in these interesting ways and when she goes off at one point she faints just yeah. like a gothic heroine and she wakes up and her, her and her and her boyfriend is there taking care of her and it's all feels a bit like it's smushing her agency back down but right at the end of the story when the boyfriend's going to go to get help two things one there's no sense that she's brought him back to life like her story mm. was there to serve him not in the least and two this is the the last words of the story Lane says, okay, I'll be right back. Don't move. Alone, Franny lay quite still, looking at the ceiling. Her lips began to move, forming soundless words, and they continued to move. Yeah, the tiniest defiance that will grow, blossom and grow. Thanks for listening, readers. We have probably not managed to say all of the things about these stories. Nor have we probably talked about all the stories. Not, not that exist in the world, no. So, if you would like to hit us up on Twitter, you can give us your recommendations and tell us your thoughts. We are at Storylogical. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. And if you would like to like and follow us on Facebook, you can. We are at facebook.com slash storyological. That's storyological, spelled like it was five seconds ago. <laughs> and if you would like to find us on iTunes and leave us a rating, we would absolutely love that because it helps other people find us too. And of course, for show notes, links to past episodes, appropriate and inappropriate gifts, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storyological.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting Cal. Interrupting Cal. <laughs> I mean, you know it's coming. Still funny. Yeah, it's mainly because I can see our little niece's face as she as she tells it for the third time as she's attempting to get it right. Yeah, yeah, it's she missed adored. it the first time. Shall we do a reenactment of your niece's first telling? <laughs> yes. Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting cow who? Moo. <laughs> oh, wait, 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 wait. Let's whimsy it up. My pick for this week. Moo. <laughs>